Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers what night is bins. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, no one else ever seems to, is writer and editor Justin Lewis. Justin, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, Tim, and hello, I'm currently posting daily instalments on Twitter of when is births, which are my specially designed cards of each day's notable birthdays. So logically, you can find me at when is births itself. When is births? Let's just say that. I'm also an author and editor, I've written several books and contributed to many more. And I'm currently in the admittedly very early stages of researching and developing a when is births spin-off which makes it sound very mysterious. Can I take a couple of guesses? Will this spin-off establish what Night Bins is? No one will ever know what Night Bins will be. Will it determine what's the best Pac-Man ghost? <laughs> is this going to mean anything to people who are not on <laughs> I Twitter? don't care, because my <laughs> final question is, will it finally determine who won the game of Twitter hide-and-seek between you and Milo Yiannopoulos? Uh, that would have been me. <laughs> unless, unless, unless you count him blocking me as winning. But then, who's still on Twitter? Is it Milo, or is it me? Ah. Right, well, moving on to your first choice, which is really the work of somebody who's playing hide-and-seek with his own audience. Derby single that you don't remember to know someone deeply is to know someone softly from his second album Neither Fish Nor Flesh. Now I don't know anyone who's actually sat through the whole thing but Justin it sounds like you might have. Well not only have I sat through the whole thing I bought this record when it came out and in fact I spent probably £11.99 of my student grant on the CD version of this record. I think the bit everybody forgets about this record now is that when it came out, it actually got some quite good reviews. It actually got, you know, sevens, eights out of ten in The Enemy and The Melody Maker and Q Magazine gave it a good review, I seem to remember. And I make this clear because I can tell you if they'd all said it stank the room out, I wouldn't have gone out to buy it. So, and I also, there was something about it. I really, really liked the first Terence Trent Derby record, introducing the hardline. It was fantastic. Just about everything on it could have been a single. And so, you know, I can imagine the scene at CBS Records where the head of A&R said, you know, well, Terence, you know, you've, you've won loads of awards. You've won a Grammy. You've sold 12 million copies of this record or whatever. Congratulations on your success. Here is a big lorry full of money. Please go off and make another multi-million selling masterpiece and then we can celebrate the next stupendous chapter of your glittering career. And, you know, 18 months goes by and in the autumn of 1989, he comes back with this record, Neither Fish Nor Flesh. And, of course, it flops completely. I mean, it get, I mean, it does go into the charts number 12, I think, which if that had been the first record he ever put out, that wouldn't have been too bad a start. But 
that is not a good omen, even in the weeks leading up to Christmas as a follow up to a huge selling record. And, you know, bearing in mind, this is about the same time that you've got, you know, Kate Bush is coming back with a new album and uh, who else? Chris Rea and Phil Collins. You know, there's lots of lot big name artists coming back. The thing is. Uh, just to just to establish how much of the, have you heard much of this record i've probably only heard the singles was there even more than one actually because i know i've heard more than one track from it there were two singles the first they they didn't in the same way that with that dex's midnight runners album that came out don't stand me down they did not release a single before the album came out they probably thought oh it'll be fine this, the album will just sell and then of course the album came out and they probably thought we'd better have put a single out just in case <laughs> and the first and the first thing they put out was a very atypical song i would say called this side of love which is a much rockier thing and also the other thing to bear in mind with this i was quite a big prince fan at this point I mean, I still am, but I really, really was at this point. And I particularly enjoyed those Prince albums that went all over the shop, Parade, Inside the Times and Around the World in a Day. Every track was sort of very different, sprawling in a good way. That was a sort of a slightly rockier single. And this is also, bear in mind, this is before, you know, it's up to people whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. This is before Lenny Kravitz was a thing. You know, it was this thing where, you know, you were supposed to, if you were a soul artist, you made soul records. If you were a rock artist, you made rock records. It was that kind of thing. And Prince had kind of muddied that water slightly, but it was very tricky. And this record is kind of, it's got, you know, there's some tracks on it that are quite funky and there are some tracks on it that are much more in keeping with the first album that are sort of just soul workouts and all that kind of thing. And then there's a few things on it that are really bizarre. That single, To Know Someone Deeply, I think if they put that out ahead of the album, it would have probably have done OK. I don't think it would have sold loads, but I think it would have done better than it actually did. Because by the time it came out, I read somewhere that apparently there was a pressing plant full of unsold copies of this record. I wouldn't be surprised, but it's quite odd that 1989 was something of a year for that. Because I remember Q did a feature, probably only in the mid-90s, called Can I Have My Money Back? Yes, uh, yes. About all kinds of albums like this. On that list, I remember there was Tim Machine, which got really good reviews, including from Q when it came out. Yes. There was the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, which got terrible reviews. And there was Terry Blair and Anushka, which was one of Terry Hall's God, projects, yeah. where they had Jerry yeah. Sadovitz in the video for the single from the album. That's right. That's the only thing That's anyone right. remembers about it. But that yeah. just got ignored when it was out. Well, there's nothing wrong with any of those albums. And probably not with this, I'm going to wager. It is just an odd album, I would surmise. I don't think a record like this would get made now. And I know people often say this about the past, as if you say, oh, it's too dangerous. Dangerous, you can get away with it now. But I think one of the problems that happened to a few albums around about then was people took a long time to make an album in those days. You could you could go away. Tears for Fears had just come back with the first record for nearly five years, I think. Seeds of Love, which is quite an odd album in its way. I mean, there's a few hits on it, but it, it's sort of an oddity, really. Yeah. Blue Nile had come back, first album for five years. Kate Bush, first new album for four years, I think. People had taken a while. And what I really liked about Neither Fish Nor Flesh, I bought Three Feet High and Rising by Della Sol around the same time. And what I liked about it was you just didn't know where it was going to go next. So each track... It sort of felt like, oh, my God, where's this going now? Even though some of it was pretentious beyond belief, I'll be honest. 
I'm very fond of this record, by the way, and I still own it. I've still got the CD of it. Has it still got the price label on it? No, it hasn't, unfortunately. I'd love to be able to say that it did. I kind of miss, if that record was being made now, they'd probably say, "Mm, okay, Terence, could you do a duet with Ed Sheeran on track seven, please? At the time, you were kind of allowed to make those mistakes. People are great in hindsight, aren't they? They go, huh, if only he'd done this, or if only done... What happened in the late 80s in pop music was... The landscape changed a hell of a lot in just a couple of years. Because if you think about it, in 1987, which is when the first Terence album came out, House was still sort of fringy. Stock Ekin and Walkman hadn't become quite the juggernaut they're no, about to. No. Hip-hop wasn't really mainstream. And two years later, really, because that's all it was, British soul music as it were as it were i mean i know tony Darby is not british but you know it was an album that was made in britain yeah. that first album to all intents and purposes all the other players are british the producer martin ware is british you know it was all this kind of thing and the second album is exactly the same i mean the kickhorns are on this second album five years before they're on blur albums you know that he got all the big sort of session players of the time british soul music was now soul to soul yes and then a cherry maybe and you know it was it it was a quite different thing and and i think even if terence trent darby had made that first album in 1989 would it have sold i don't know no one knows it's the thing about pop music nobody knows what's going to sell really it's easy after the event to say that you think it might have done i think we should say by the way of course that he still makes records but he is not called terence trent darby anymore but what gets written that history was he had that comeback album in i think it was 93 yeah i think he had another stupid title but that did quite well didn't it symphony or damn that was it Uh, yes yeah and he had had delicate and she kissed me both of which i thought were quite good singles yeah well delicate was the one with desiree wasn't it delicate that's, that's quite a good song it right that. please that's quite a nice song that i mean there's another song we haven't mentioned it's on this album which i really thought if they put this one out as a hit single it's called i'll be all right and it's got a bit of a ponderous intro but if they cut it down for radio i think it would have been a hit and this album as i said came out just a few weeks after i arrived at university when i graduated literally the week i graduated from college I happened to hear Chris Morris sitting in on the Radio 5 breakfast show because Danny Baker was on holiday and he played I'll Be Alright and as it faded out he said these words he said that's from the much slagged Neither Fish Nor Flesh Terence Trent Darby album actually had some quite good stuff on it he had a go didn't he and I can remember thinking two things in that moment and one was the relief that somebody else had heard it and thought some of it was quite good and the other thought was he had a go. I mean, you can't say fairer than that. He had a go. By the way, this album is dedicated, amongst other people, to Muhammad Ali and Brian Wilson. Of course, the obvious pairing. But he was Muhammad Ali. He was. Do you know he was a boxer before he became a, a singer? Do you know that? So that makes sense. And there's because he had that sort of absolute self-belief that people have in sport. He sort of had this amazing kind of self-confidence, which I generally find a bit off-putting. But in his case, I used to just think, yeah, but he can sing, though. You kind of <laughs> you kind of had to hand that to him. But just look back on Chris Morris a moment. The album begins with a track called Declaration, Neither Fish Nor Flesh. And it's a very brief track. It's just some sort of what sounds like guitar feedback. And he reads a declaration over it. I tell you, I think Chris Morris's Blue Jam has something to do with that introduction. Whoa. When you hear it, you will go, 
Oh my god. Well, I might put that at the end of the show, but just one last note on Terence Trent Derby, which is yes. the thing that I always think about him now, whenever he's mentioned, is when he was on Star Test. Confuses him, what's the stupidest face you can pull? He gamely obliges, doesn't he? Oh, that would be his legacy, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a couple of times on this album, you do get the Aral equivalent of that moment. There is a track on this where he does play the kazoo at one point. <laughs> I mean, I'm sold. You know, I want to hear this. Now. Yeah, it's not that. Well, you might disagree, and other people. It's on Spotify. If people are interested, it is on Spotify. Speaking of people pulling stupid faces, though you couldn't actually see them doing it, we're moving on to your second choice, which is represented by this. When we came back, our scripts had been taken from our little room. Yeah, it's just, just next to the toilet, and yeah. uh, it's just round about. I don't know if you've been there. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, no, it's the old actor's nightmare, like finding oh. yourself in the high street with no clothes on. Ah! <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, very funny, very funny, uh, good joke, but um, can we have our scripts back now, please? No, really, come on. No, no whoever's responsible, we're going we're gonna to turn the lights out for five seconds, okay? And wh- whoever is responsible for this can, can return the scripts on stage and there'll be no headmaster study, nothing okay. like that, you know. Five <laughs> now, look, we're trying to treat you like responsible adults and you're making it very difficult for us. Okay, right. Hands on your heads, everyone. I mean, everyone. That means you, you, your hands on your heads. Okay, hang on, hang on. Come on. Look, there's no need for that. I mean, after all, we've been picked to be in this live show because of our ability to, um, think quick. Okay, well, hopefully that was in both of your ears, but that was a clip from In One Ear. So, Justin, I know it's been mentioned on here before, but tell us all about In One Ear. Hello, Mum, which was what this programme became on television has come up on this podcast before. It was John Rainey chose it, uh, wasn't it? It's a forgotten show now, In One Ear, but at the time this came out, which was 19... Well, the pilot was 1983, but the series was a year later. At the time, this was heralded as the first live radio comedy series for 30 years. It was produced and co-created by a man called Jamie Ricks, who is the son of Brian Ricks, Lord Ricks, who was in farces a lot and then was the um, head of Mencap, wasn't he, I believe? Jamie became a big children's author later. He's still in TV production. And in fact, he produces Not Going Out these days. And there was a live episode of that just recently. And I couldn't help but notice. I thought, oh, right. I wonder what elements of In One Ear will end up in this. As it turned out, not that many. But I was <laughs> but, but I was I was intrigued because... How to describe in one ear? I mean, it's a milestone in radio comedy history, really, because to me, and I was listening to a lot of radio comedy at this point, I think it properly brings for the first time a sort of a spirit of alternative cabaret of new variety to the Radio 4 airwaves. I don't think it had really happened before. And if you didn't live in London, and I didn't live in London, there were no comedy clubs, really. There was no real way of seeing or hearing that kind of dynamic. And this is pre-Saturday Live as well. That hadn't happened yet. But it isn't quite a stand-up show. It's a slightly peculiar hybrid. It's almost a mix of cabaret and pantomime. And it's no surprise to me, really, to see that Nick Wilton, who was one of the cast, that he's become such a giant of pantomime because you hear him on this and he's just so good with an audience. He really, really, I mean, all the cast are, but he particularly has that. uh, There's a great bit on one of the shows because he'd done a lot of kids' telly as well. He started one joke. He just went, he just went, what do you get? And there's this pause and the audience giggles slightly. He just goes, I've been on play away. What do you get? <laughs> <laughs> so there's this really nice way that he and of course, I knew him from that. He just started to do that show fast forward on BBC mm. 
2, which was like a sort of a, essentially a play away sequel. But the thing was, it's difficult to, to overemphasize how important it was that Radio 4 had stuff like this on because it's, it's amazing to think now that Radio 4, you, you think it's genteel now. Radio 4 has loosened up a hell of a lot since the 80s. I mean, it's worth noting that at the time this series went out, it had only just appointed its first staff continuity announcer who wasn't received pronunciation. It was the great Susan Ray from Scotland, who is still on air and still fantastic. And she got so much negative mail from idiot listeners for her accent. It was really a buttoned up station. It really was. So for it to have radioactive and sonic cliche and hitchhikers all felt revolutionary. But in one ear, it was a live show, a Saturday night, 1130 to midnight. And every week it sort of felt like an event. It was this thing, it was sketches, songs, monologues, but the four performers, who were Nick Wilton, Steve Brown, Clive Mantle and Helen Lederer, they all appeared as versions of themselves and they'd often break that fourth wall. So the audience in the room is essentially a character. It's like a Greek chorus. They might get to deliver a line in a sketch or they might even heckle. There's like, obviously, they've been told heckle at this point. So it is really like pantomime, but in a very sort of strange way. And then you've got a writer's list, which is, in retrospect, extraordinary. I mean, like, apart from the cast who are all doing stuff for it, there's Murray Hunter and Jack Doherty. There's Jeffrey Perkins, Harry Enfield, Vicky Pyle, who later did Smack the Pony and Green Wing, the great Arnold Brown, Jeremy Hardy, and Paul Merton, who in those days was still called Paul Martin. And they used to do some great stunts in this show. What are you saying about finding it dangerous, feeling like it could almost fall off air? That's why it's quite annoying that it doesn't really get the... I mean, part of the problem is I don't think it's worn that well in terms of, what you know, when you hear it on 4 Extra now. But the only other times I've had that kind of sense of... I mean, I'm a bit too young for Kenny Everett when he was at his wildest. Yeah. But yeah. Victor Lewis-Smith on Loose Ends, sometimes I used to think they're going to take him off air. Chris Morris's yeah. Radio 1 show and Blue Jam, which actually did get taken off air midway yes. through one show. Yes. You know, and those shows are heralded as, you know, high watermarks of radio, and in one ear never is. One of the reasons in one ear is problematic in terms of repeating it is that, well, firstly, they're not all in the archive anyway. When BBC Seven, which was the forerunner to 4 Extra, they repeated some, but they didn't have very many, and it really affected it because they didn't even have consecutive episodes available. Because So you don't get that building sense of momentum. And the other reason I think it has a problem in terms of how it's aged it's also the fact that because it was a live show and it wasn't topical in a week ending type way, it felt like something you had to hear there and then. Because even if you heard the same week repeat, it just didn't feel the same. The atmosphere was different. It really was a show which you had to hear as it went out. And there was this thing where, because they used to do stunts in it to show that it was a live show, to show that they could sort of mess about with that kind of thing. There was one week where it was the Saturday night where the clocks were going forward for British summertime. And the show mistakenly, or it pretended to assume that the clocks were going back. So the conceit, <laughs> so the conceit was that we were overhearing the cast do the run through of the show, wondering why the wondering why the audience had turned up so early. They were just heard to abandon items or saying things like, "Well, that's getting cut." They have the warm up man come on. <laughs> who is presumably the usual warm-up man, is a man called Paul B. Davis, who is 
Paul Bassett Davis on Twitter, who's still very, very funny. And in those days, he was a stand-up and writer. He was one of the writers on the show. But he used to do the warm-up, presumably, most weeks. But on this occasion, they had him come on in the guise of a really horrible, trad, frilly-shirted comedian. They refer to him as, we've just got him from one of Paul Raymond's clubs round the corner. And they do it so that he does very unpleasant jokes, which wouldn't I don't think would ever... I think this is another problem. It would not get repeated now because... Some of the language in the routine is of its time, let's say. But they orchestrate it so that he gets booed off by the audience. And then the brilliant bit at the end of the show, so just after this has happened, and then they kind of go, well, what are we going to do now before we start the show? And then the continuity announcer that night, who is Charlotte Green, comes in with, this is Radio 4, and it's just coming up to midnight. And Nick Wilson says, but what about the show? And Charlotte (laughs) Green says, and Charlotte Green just replies, you've just done it. And then she says, well, that's the end of my pre-recorded bit. And the next time you hear my voice will be me speaking live. Or in the case of next Friday's repeat broadcast, possibly somebody else. So even the repeat was never going to be the same because no. to hear it as, oh, my God, they're really doing this. I don't think something like the Mary Whitehouse experience, for instance, would have emerged in the same way without yeah. this show. I mean, they're very different shows in some ways. But, you know, in between in one ear and that, I mean, they, they've got that late Saturday slot to try things. Million Pan Radio Show would come a bit later. There was Cabaret Upstairs would come later. And, you know, it did win the Sony Award in one ear. It did win the Sony Award in, in uh, 85. I think. But the other thing that's important about it in terms of Radio 4, it is probably about the least Oxbridge show that radio comedy did at that point because it's not really it's in no way really i can't think of almost nobody on that show who was oxbridge it's red brick university if anything it's you know kent and sussex and brunel i mean in the case of paul Merton, it's not even university it's the comedy circuit and this is just before another point here is that to think that paul merton's on that show dave cohen's on that show some of the first stuff he wrote i think and this is just before the comedy store players start and You've got Who's Line coming up on the inside track. It's all heading that way, and it's all heading towards Radio 4. So it's an incredibly important show, really. I wish I'd gone to a, well, I say a recording, but you know what I mean. I wish I'd gone to it, because it would have been extraordinary, I think. Well, that was shows like that and the Mary Bosa's experience did always make you feel like you wanted to be in the audience. Yeah, very that's much. because yeah. prior to that, as far as I'm concerned, most radio comedy, and I've heard a lot of old radio comedy, most of it, the interactions with the audience, you know, in, it's like they're gags where they've they been written, they've been told, address this gag to the audience. Doesn't matter yeah. who's in there. Whereas within one ear, you start to get the thing of them actually picking on people in the audience. And then obviously, yeah. the very White House experience, you get, you know, the tracksuit man and let's all hide while he's gone to the toilet. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I believe, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but I was once told a fair number of the people who went to the In One Ear shows as they ended because it would end at midnight and then they'd go to the comedy store which was round the corner from regent street to see the midnight show at the comedy store so in other words a lot of the people who were going to it knew what they were going to they were not going to fall asleep in the front row that's one of the reasons the audience is absolutely right for that show and one of the reasons i think when they did hello mum that it came unstuck because i don't know if the audience quite understood what the show was when they did it for television okay we're moving on to your next choice now which is represented by something that i'm laughing even just thinking of this OK, 
Okay, well, that was the London Symphony Orchestra doing Miracle Cure from Tommy by The Who, which for years and years I thought was the most ridiculous song, and I use the word song advisedly, ever recorded, but somehow the LSO did it more ridiculously. Justin, what's this from? I like the fact you were able to play all of that. I mean, it's like it's 12 (laughs) seconds long or something, isn't it? (laughs) I should declare at this point that I I haven't, well, I haven't so far anyway chosen anything that I actually dislike. This is Tommy, the Who's rock opera, done in 1972, I think, by the London Symphony Orchestra and Chorus and with a host, a host, if you will, of special guests. And this comes in between the Who's original album and the Ken Russell film that came in the mid 70s, which had, you know, Oliver Reed and Anne Margaret and Elton John, etc. This, I believe, started as I believe they were going to do it as a stage show or a charity show. I think it was for Christmas and so it's got loads of guest stars on it so you've got like Richard Harris for example who plays the psychiatrist and Sandy Denny is in it not not very much unfortunately yeah, yeah. she's she's the midwife or, no the nurse that's right she's Steve Winwood's on there Richie Havens is on there uh, Mary Clayton who did the backing vocals on Gimme Shelter is on there in our house in the 70s we had both the Who's version and we also had this version although I think we only had a dubbed off cassette and I think I must have first heard it when I was about six because The Who actually played Swansea's football ground in 19... I think it was 76. And my dad may have gone to that gig, although he's been gone many years now, so I can't ask him, unfortunately. But I think he went to that gig. But you know what? I, I quite like the arrangements on this sometimes. I think the only time they don't really work is when they try and put rock music and orchestra together. But the purely orchestral bits, I think, are very good on the whole. And I was fascinated to discover the orchestral arranger is Will Malone. Will who, Malone, yes. Now, yeah. who does everything now and he at the time he i think he was only just out of his teens it was one of the first things he did and he did the strings on unfinished sympathy by massive attack for example which is an absolute masterpiece so sweet symphony as well which is quite confusing oh of course he does that's right yeah that's right it's a very early example and i think you know considering he would have been about 20 when he did this i think it's a really there's some good bits and there's some great bits on it like the overture section which even on the who's album you know the idea of an overture is you have all the motifs that turn up later but you get these little bits on it like the french horns playing ever since i was a young boy i played the silver ball you know from the first line but they play it in such a way that it sounds a bit like sitcoms where they get to the end the end of the end titles like fresh fields would go and then it would go da da like that as if to say funny things are about to happen so maybe this was a bit like tommy the sitcom i don't know there's some very odd things on it like that ringo is uncle ernie i genuinely was disturbed by his performance on this record when i was a child to the point where i actually couldn't go back to it for many years and when i finally heard it again by which time i was a grown-up i suddenly realized that you know because he's supposed to be drunk you know he is supposed to be you know for anyone who doesn't know the story of tommy i mean you know he basically plays this uh, molester so he does sort of and, and you know he can sing let's be fair he, you know we've heard don't pass me by and it's fine you know he, he can't do it but he just does this really drunk singing on it and i think my fear of it was probably not just of unpleasant characters but people singing out of tune and it's just before rod stewart's 
version of Pinball Wizard. If the effort there was a song suited to Daltrey, it's that. <laughs> you know, it needs yeah. that, that to-the-point bombastic vocal but lack of histrionics. Yeah. Of course, the, the version of I'm Free that they always play is <laughs> the... The Gaston <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Whenever they play it, Radio 2 play it occasionally, and the version that came out as a single was from this orchestral version. But you know what, Tommy, though? It's one of those things I can never quite decide whether it's brilliant or ludicrous. It might be both. I'm exactly in the same camp, because as anyone who's read Cards Help Thinking About Me will know, I love the first three Who albums to the point where I had to make, and there's an article about this in there, a conscious decision about whether, given, well, it's now how problematic all of them were in different ways right. whether yeah. I could keep on listening to those albums but Tommy has always seemed to me to be less essential it's just too long it is long yeah and it hasn't got the variety of the White Album and it's not for I'll say that <laughs> no I guess not I mean it's one of the things about finding things that you remember that only you remember is that and this is why I could only really well, we'll come to an exception possibly shortly but one of the things I've generally chosen stuff that I like is that it's so bound up with your own memory and your own nostalgia that you kind of think there must have been something in this that I liked at the time in order for it to still be resonant. This record I would have heard over 40 years ago now so it's obviously stayed in the stayed in the memory bank even though there were many years where I didn't listen to it. It's an odd album really also because the story is very vague and as a child I didn't I think I took the concepts of it rather literally. I don't think I realised that there were a lot of metaphors going on there. I think I thought, oh, right, well, these things are literally happening. It's one of the reasons the film is just baffling, really. That is true of almost any concept album. I mean, you look at things like SF Sorrow by The Pretty Things, The Magic Shoemaker by Fire. They, they kind of, the story, they have an idea of what happens in it, but they just sort of go, this happens, then that happens, and they don't really pay attention. Although the one exception is Tarkus by Emerson Lake and Palmer, which <laughs> I can tell, just a bit me two giant robot dinosaur things chatting each other. That is my kind of concept. It's not even about an otter. <laughs> you know, it's 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 not even about an otter. It's just uh, oh I mean, I, I Tarkus the otter. Thank you. I think the thing with concept albums, though, it's a bit like I remember John Cleese once said about opera that he said the problem he found with opera was that a lot of the things that he found important about theatre, which is the story and the characters and all that kind of thing, lagged somewhat behind the music. But of course, the, the music is kind of the most important thing i don't think the story is just there to sort of hang in the background really because i think otherwise we'll go and write a novel if you feel like that about it just before we move on do you know what else will malone was doing in 1972 1972 go on when he was working on this he's doing the soundtrack to Deathline, the british horror film about cannibals <laughs> in the tube a scary <laughs> movie soundtrack at the same time as doing this Speaking of scary moog tones, I believe some may have been involved in your next choice, which I, I, I don't actually want to listen to this again, but here it is. Good What's that? 
What does that say? That says, that says bring, bring the image dissector camera into focus. Okay, well, that was a clip of Alan Taylor on HTV's Orbit. Justin, I'm just going to let you explain this. This is Orbit, not the chewing gum, not the sitcom where William Orbit shared a flat with Ben Lee Brand and Trevor Horn lived in the basement. No. <laughs> was the theme just loads of orchestra hits for that? <laughs> No, this is another orbit, a very different orbit, I think you'll find. Long, long ago, when interactivity was still in short trousers, children's TV used to make programmes where viewers could write in for birthday greetings and messages and so on. You know, if you lived in the West Country, there was Gus Honeybun, uh, Puppet Rabbit, of course. If you lived in Scotland, there was the Glen Michael Cavalcade with Paladin the Talking Lamp. And the first I knew about that was Craig Ferguson doing stand-up about it. And uh, later, you know, Philip Schofield did the broom cupboard many years later. But if you lived in Wales and the west of England, like I did, then you would get Orbit, which was on HTV, which is our ITV station, on Saturdays between about, would have been about 73 and 76, I think. This was a programme where Alan Taylor, it was our sort of all-purpose regional presenter. It was on everything. So that would have been, you know, Richard Whiteley in Yorkshire or Tony Wilson up in the northwest where you were, uh, was sent into space. Was that viewer's request, was it? Yeah. And maybe Alan Taylor was supposedly he was Captain Alan Taylor was sent into space or rather sent into a spaceship set in a cupboard in Bristol with some kind of buzzing alien gonk called Chester it was clearly made out of a vacuum cleaner nozzle and the noise Chester make it sounds like regional sweep it's really it's really <laughs> strange I've been told, this is a theme emerging here, I've been told by my parents that I was absolutely terrified of Alan Taylor when I was a tiny child. I would start screaming whenever he would come on TV, and I don't think this was in a, a Beatlemania way. This was this was very much Alan mania. I think it was the mix of, it was Alan, whatever Chester was, it was more unsettling than the alien in, well, frankly, alien. Maybe he burst out of Alan's stomach, I don't know. <laughs> and a theme which, you know, it sounds like the HTV radiophonic workshop. I think the deal with Orbit is they get some correspondence, lots of postcards, and quite what happens after, I can't really remember. I think what it was, was it was, it was interactivity at a time when you didn't you didn't really have many options in the 70s you basically had to send you, you know you'd send your postcard off and hope they read it out and that would be it was sort of i suppose that was the closest we had to the internet in south wales a couple of other things about alan taylor i mean he did occasionally appear in things that got shown in other parts of the country he did host um paint along with nancy kaminsky oh, which people yes, made yeah. for a bit not not the whole run but he did host a couple of series of that and he also hosted one of the many regional variants on Mr. and Mrs., for which he wore a monocle. And I was very amused to find, only a few years ago, that Joan Bakewell, of all people, who was in 1978, the TV critic for The Times, actually wrote a whole column about an episode of Mr. and Mrs., hosted by Alan Taylor, that in her words, mysteriously ran out of contestants about two thirds of the way through <laughs> and resorted to a sing song. <laughs> <laughs> and I've since and I've since discovered that the only reason that was probably shown on national television was because it was an alternative World Cup TV schedule, and I think England had just been knocked out of the tournament, and I think that's the only reason they showed it. She was very underwhelmed by it, let's say. Well, do you know we had our own in Granada, where I think it's only me that remembers it. It was called Hey, It's My Birthday Too, where ostensibly you could write in, um, you know, obviously say it's my birthday, and they'd read out your birthday. But the only things I remember 
remember about it were it had the shortest, most cursory theme tune ever, which is a quacking <laughs> synth went and had a sort of animated boy like running down the street shouting, you know, with his hands against his mouth into the air. Obviously that it was his birthday too. And the crowd the sort of well wishes waved and the policeman did a comedy knees bending. <laughs> When was that? When, when it, roughly would that be? It would have be? been late 70s, early 80s, because it was presented variously by people like, these names will mean nothing to anyone who didn't grow up in the Granada region, Charles Foster, Bob Greaves, of course, TV's Beardy Man, Jim Pope. No, but that's what, that's what he was known as to us as children. He was Beardy Man. It was once great excitement when on New Year's Eve, Beardy Man had clearly been handed some of the sherry before he came on to say Happy New Year to those names are all sort of it's funny isn't it how regions sort of have these names that generally I, mean, I you know i vaguely know bob greaves but the others I, I i just know the names because you hear people talk about the names and things but i generally don't know who they are and it's i think alan taylor would be would be the same really the other thing i was going to say about this and one of the reasons i'm surprised that granada did one of these was that i always assumed that the reason that you could seem to see these birthday programs for quite large regions that had a lot of rural areas because wales and it's still like this now north wales and south wales could almost be different places because you know there's no real easy way of getting from one to the other and so as a result it feels hard to think of it as being an integrated place really and i think you know probably scotland has the same problem and you know there's sort of it does feel in some ways it feels united and in some ways it's everything feels quite a long way away because you're certainly not in wales we don't have big rail links and things like that so uh right road links even anyway we we've 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 strayed somewhat from <laughs> from orbit discussion but it's because i've only seen three minutes for god's sake if anybody has a complete episode of orbit i don't know why you would but um <laughs> if if somebody i mean god the three minutes on youtube who the hell picked that up i can't imagine but you know god bless whoever did it well if you want to hear buzzing gonks these days, a good place is Popmaster on Radio 2. But we're going back a little further in time to one of his progenitors here, so let's just hear a bit of it. A quiz game played by those in the know on questions of pop and popular music. Keeping the score and popping the questions is your chairman, Pete Murray. Okay, that was Radio 2's Pop Score. So, Justin, when was this from? Do you know what the theme tune is actually called, Pop is Score? It pop Score? No, I can tell you. The theme tune, it's a piece of music we actually had in our house when I was young. It's by a guy called Patrick Williams, who was a band leader. And amongst his credits, he wrote the terrific theme tune to The Streets of San Francisco. Oh, yes. That's probably what he's most famous for. But this was a track called Chicken Feathers. And my dad liked a lot of big band music. And this was on an LP called Think Pat Williams, which was a mix of cover versions and things like that. It's very quite a nice version of I Say a Little Prayer on there. And um, as the title suggests, Think uh, is also on there, the Ruth Franklin song. And uh, there's a version of Hey Jude on it as well, which um, it's not seven minutes long. Let's let's <laughs> let's say nice things about it. But anyway, Chicken Feathers. Yeah, it was the theme to pop score. And now it's the early 80s. I'm nine, ten years old. I've suddenly got my own bedroom. I had been showing with my younger brother, but I've suddenly got a bedroom of my own. I've just had a clock radio for Christmas. And so I start to listen to a lot 
of radio in the late evening. And some people at this point would go, yes, I was listening to John Peel under the bedclothes every night. But I must confess that I was not. Instead, I was listening to Radio 2 at around the same time when they had a sort of alternative programming, entertainment and comedy shows and panel games. And that is how I got to hear this thing called Pop School. What was interesting about Pop School, I was just getting into pop music in a big, big way like really really obsessively you know i started to it was the radio but also i started to buy smash hits and i got guinness hit singles as a present that year and you know and so suddenly i was completely immersed and so i was really interested in the history of it and this was around the time where there would have been enough pop music you know pop music by this point had a history there was 25 years since rock and roll had happened so there was enough material there and the thing that was interesting about pop score it was the first time i realized that a quiz and a panel game are not the same thing a quiz is about people getting the answers right a panel game doesn't really depend or hinge on people getting the answers right sometimes it's entertaining when the panel doesn't know or even doesn't care when they can riff about the question or they can sort of go off on a tangent and the guests they used to have on it you know they'd have a dj or a broadcaster as one of the team captains so it was when i started listening i've just checked but it was pete murray who was the chairman when i started listening and then it was wogan and tony blackburn had been the team captains but by the time i was listening it was tony blackburn and david hamilton and david hamilton was the one presenter on radio 2 at that point it was sort of playing popish music because this radio 2 is very different for younger listeners radio 2 was a very very different beast in the 70s and 80s occasionally you would get a pop song in amongst a lot of like classical and middle of the road and this was of course the time when there were records like label with love by squeeze elvis costello's good year for the roses was another one which got as high as they did in the charts, partly because Radio 2 made them records of the week. They were played a lot on Radio 2. And, of course, the most famous example from around that time is Golden Brown by The Stranglers, yes. which was David Hamilton's record of the week. Basically, they could they could barely get arrested before that on normal radio. They weren't having any hits or anything. And this suddenly got them, well, the biggest hit they ever had, wasn't it? So Pop Score, it was that kind of environment where they had a showbiz, they'd have a showbiz guest on, or somebody had had a hit 20 years before, or in the case of someone like Mike Berry, who was, you know, Mr. Spooner and Are You Being Served? someone who had been both these things you know he'd been a pop star in the early 60s and then had become an actor so it made no bones of the fact that it was entertainment and so they would do things like they would play introductions to records and you'd have to say what it was but then they might play the very end of a record and you'd have to guess what that was another thing they did was they would play they might play a familiar song but a cover version by someone really unlikely. It might be an actor or an entertainer or something like that, and you'd have to guess who it was. So it was very, very silly, but that was fine because I was 11. There was something, and I used to really, really be thrilled if I got stuff right, because obviously I'm still a really young person, and they were asking questions about things from 20 years earlier. But some unusual areas came up. I was once listening to it. I forget when this was. It would have been about mid-80s, probably. And they played a section from Robert Wyatt's absolutely tremendous version of I'm a Believer, the Neil Diamond really? song, you know. 
and they asked you. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm just saying to people, just in case there's another I'm a believer, and they asked you who was singing that version. And when they revealed the answer, I forget who was on the show, which is probably just as well. There was a lot of sarcastic ooh sort of reactions <laughs> like Mark and Lard do. And, and I'm not sure shipbuilding probably would have been a hit by then, but it's still not something a Radio Two audience yeah. might have got, you know. And it wasn't like anyone in the room piped up with, you know, Fred Frith from Henry Cow's playing the violin on that. So you know, nobody <laughs> did that. So it was, it was, it was all a bit awkward, and I always felt well, maybe they should have reversed it. You know, here's Robert Wyatt. Well, what's this song? And played the solo from it. Although I don't know, maybe that would have been too easy. But they did 20 years of pop score. They did 200 episodes. I think they finished. I think the 200th was not quite the last one, but it was in the last series. And they got all the original people back on it. So like Pete Murray came back, Wogan came back, Blackburn came back. But by then, the main host of it was Ken Bruce. And also the question compiler towards the end of the run was Phil Swern, who Phil the Collector Swern, who of course is still does he still do the questions for Popmaster? I'm not sure, but he was heavily involved in the show. And uh, yeah, they have people on it like they'd have Fluff Freeman on it, but they'd have Bernard Cribbins on it, or they'd have <laughs> Eric Idle was Eric on it Idle for a couple of episodes yeah, in the seventies. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. That's something somebody will have that somewhere as an offer. I'm sure of that. I'm fascinated by guest lists though of these things because of course there were other pop quizzes on. I mean, obviously pop quiz on the BBC and things like that. But there was also, do you remember Radio One's Great Rock and Roll Trivia Quiz? I do. do you remember that? By was it Andy Peebles? It was. I had to check this up, but it was it was Kid Jensen, ah, and then right. Kid Jensen went to Capital Radio, and it was me, Mark Page. Me, Mark over. Page. Wow, this is and, carbon dated almost. I know, I know, and and also I do I did have to check this up because I did I was kind of thinking, God, who was on it? And it was um the producer was John Leonard, who went off to form the production company with Mark Radcliffe that now makes all Mark Radcliffe shows, I think. It's Smooth Operations, I think. There was one episode of Great Rock and Roll Trivia Quiz. Oh, by the way, the Great Rock and Roll Trivia Quiz had Holly Johnson on the panel of that show at the same time that they weren't able to play his record on Radio 1. I remember somebody writing into Smash Hits about that, saying, that, that isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> well, of course, they'd have pre-recorded it, and they, it was not like they could have cut him out, could they, I suppose? There was one show, fantastically, because there were two teams of three, and they didn't have a team captain. It was just whoever was around. You do get the sense sometimes that they were scrabbling around for guests, because brilliantly there was one week where they had on one team it was captain sensible fair enough richard skinner was radio on presenter and from tick and talk tick <laughs> not even talk and they didn't even have talk on the other team <laughs> not even talk poor old talk must have like must have been fuming <laughs> I, I mean someone will choose tick and talk on this one day i i can promise you someone someone is going to be out there going yeah, tick and talk who remembers them this has nothing to do with this but i'm keeping it in anyway just because I, I i think this will amuse you did you ever watch when they were repeating on the game show channel challenge tv a few years ago they were repeating 90s episodes of celebrity squares no i didn't when bob Monkhouse. You only had to watch bits of it because it was, well, it, it, you know, even with Bob, it, it, it tried the patience somewhat brilliantly. They'd obviously it was, and this, this could only have been 1993 because it was the only year you could have got away with it, really. But it was the year the Chippendales were were kind of around, and they kept having members of the Chippendales on that sort of big box grid where one of them was in the middle like you know Willie Rushton would have been on another week what they did was they had more than one of these Chippendales on the show but instead of calling them you know Bill or Bob or whatever they just had Chippendale written there (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, how dehumanising is that? I mean, they could have just, they might as well have just put a number there, you know, it's just been amazingly, I mean, God, it's, I mean, you know, if that had been me, I'd be, look, I'm an artist in my own right. It's just been like, it's amazing. Chippendale. Extraordinary. Well, the one I really want to see again, I think it's been mentioned on here before, is Cabbages and Kings, just because I could not <laughs> understand what it was. And I said, all Wasn't I it? remember is, it was just kind of, it would be people like Nigel Reese and Giles Brandreth, and they'd say like, Giles, what have you got for us? And they'd go, who? Oh, the boy stood on the burning deck, and they'd all fall about laughing. It was always that thing, that the boy stood on the burning deck thing, which I don't even know what it is. Was Cabbages and Kings not the television equivalent of quote-unquote? I don't think originally. so. Was that, was that what it was? At some point ever in history, and nobody died of boredom watching it, so it can't have been oh, quote okay. unquote. Can't remember. I, I, I really don't. I, all, I've, all I vaguely remember is somebody saying once that, that the BBC did, weren't interested in doing a television version of, of quote unquote, so they went to Granada with it. When they went to Granada at the end. <laughs> That will make no sense. Right? Quote unquote was on. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. When Hump said, uh, and in other news, I see a quote unquote has been added to the Listen Again page. Good one, Nigel. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't hear those repeated very often on uh, Four Extra, do you? Well, speaking of things that don't get repeated, we're on to your last choice now, which I don't know what we're going to put here, so there will be something, and then I will back announce it. At five! At five! Cribbins did what? Go fuck yourself, Baker. No, that's not Wells. Trembling in your voice. Which there was, strangely enough. At four. Um, Pandora Wara. Rower. Pandora. Really. As dawn breaks, that means. At three. Hang on. You're doing well. You're doing so well. Either that's a clip from what we're talking about, or it will be Ben Baker trying to make Phil Catterall read out Super Fairy Animals B-side titles in Welsh. Because, Justin, what are we talking about? Before I get started on this, before we go any further, I just want to issue a particular disclaimer. I am from Wales. I have a number of friends who are Welsh speakers, and my own father's first language is Welsh. And nothing of what I'm about to say is in any way meant to be a criticism of the Welsh language or anyone who speaks it. It's merely a kind of slight frustration from my six-year-old self's perspective because this may stagger younger listeners but back in the 1970s there really were only three television channels in britain and one of them bbc2 was hardly ever on so a few lucky souls due entirely to geography and the quirks of transmitter reach might be in a location where they could pick up one or two regional stations but for most of us three channels was your lot and if you lived in wales as i did or indeed if you lived in scotland you would often hear the following announcement it would be you know the announcer would say coming up on bbc one is that long awaited goodies repeat or the new series blake seven or whatever it might be and then there'd be a pause and the announcer would say that's except for viewers in wales who have their own program and they didn't even have the decency to tell you what that program was I should emphasise here that it wasn't that the programme was in Welsh that bugged me. Even after the Welsh Channel 4, S4C, gave Welsh language television its own proper schedule in the 80s, we'd still get English language regional opt-outs that were perhaps more annoying. The point was we were being denied the good programme that people outside Wales were able to watch. And there was no YouTube then, obviously. There was no catch-up, no videos, nothing. And I'm sure, I'm equally sure that Welsh language speakers were frustrated that there was relatively little programming aimed at them. I mean, you know, it was a flawed system and we all had to make the best of it. But all of this is a preamble for a particular type of Welsh language programme. And that was the dubbed animation slot in children's TV. 
I want to cite two examples in particular that I can remember by title, although I'm, there were others, but I just cannot remember titles. One of them was the Welsh language version of Cockle Shell Bay, the Cosgrove Hall stop frame animation series, which is called Kai Kokos. I can't remember who was the narrator for that, I'm afraid. But the other, which I can tell you a bit more about, was the dubbed into Welsh version of Trumpton, which is called Tredut. The thing was, the narrator of Tredut, who I don't think sang the songs, I think they just, I think he might have just read them out as poetry or something like that, was a man called Emir Daniel, who at the time was the host of Headview, which was the Welsh news magazine programme in the evening. Honest to God, I wish I wish this stuff was on YouTube because it really would, you know, I'd be able to scratch a nostalgic itch with this stuff because, you know, it really was like really weird to think that it's none of this is in any way sort of accessible. You can't find this stuff now. There were other dubbed shows around. They're from a little bit later, S4C time, when they did, uh, there was Smurfs, was uh, Smurfs, Parsley, the lion was Parsley. But best of all, there was Athro Answer. <laughs> which was te- teacher time, which was in fact the dubbed version of Professor Kitzel. What? Um, which was on in the afternoon for some reason. That yes, not, yes, honestly, they, they did. D- and, and the thing is, here's the interesting thing. I did watch quite a lot of bits of this stuff, even though I couldn't really speak Welsh. I mean, I did it in school, but the thing with any language, isn't it? If, if you're not speaking it every day, then you're, you're stuffed really, aren't you? And, you know, we didn't speak it at home. And these shows were on and because there wasn't really anything else you you had it on in the background so there were a number of children's programs which i saw like um there was a serial on called bob or bach which translates as little people where the characters were shrunk to miniature size and in one show were terrorized by what was in comparison to them a gargantuan mouse this wasn't a cartoon this was a this was an actual sort of well live action i suppose you'd call it and there was also a show about the songs of the american wild west that sung in welsh the theme was america from West Side Story. I mention all this not as a gripe, really, because in a way, it, it was the first time that I was made aware quite early on that not everything was for you personally, that there were other audiences out there, that this was a good thing. And in the end, we didn't miss out on much because all those episodes of The Goodies and Blake 7 and films and so on are now on DVD and YouTube. And as I say, the Welsh language stuff is the stuff that's really hard to find now from, from that era. It's near impossible. It is really is I've, I've really searched to try and find some examples of it it's it's just not out there i do remember seeing mr ben and welsh once called i think mr ben yes god yes that's and right god i've forgotten all about credits. that that's right it did exist the end credit graphics weren't right they were what did they like do for the, the end credits well, you know on the original the way it had you know the for all the people credited it had a mr ben doing the job Right, right, like right. One right. Mr. Yeah. Ben, three Mr. Ben's, and then the one with the musicians with eight of them along the big flute. You start going, yes, one, two, three, four, five, right. and an older sibling, you go, there's eight of them. But they just had like a picture of Mr. <laughs> ben with the credits scrolling next to him, and that's wrong! That's, that should not happen. They often had that slight problem, I think, because, I mean, probably this stuff was done against the clock, yeah. probably, or they, they only had like. And after, I'm, pro, I'm sure Emir Daniel recorded all the Treader episodes in like a day or something. We, we are recording this, by the way, on David McKee's birthday. So oh, happy, happy birthday, birthday David, David McKee. Yeah. I should write into hey, it's my birthday too for him. <laughs> <laughs> send a send a, a postcard to Orbit. Um, <laughs> God, imagine imagine if Alan Taylor and Chester were the first people in space. I mean, you know, it would be. It would it would be a very different history, wouldn't <laughs> Nobody it? Nobody would ever invade the Earth. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh dear. And I think that's a strange note as I need to end on. So, Justin, it's been brilliant. <laughs> you're gonna not. You're not gonna leave that pause in. <laughs> I might. Do. Oh god. Justin, it's been brilliant. Oh, Thank Jesus. you. Thank you very much, Tim. So, so I'm not a bro. To this, I am resigned. But, but to an outside, to an outside world, I will not be defined. I will not be defined. Because I'm neither fish. Because I'm neither fish nor flesh. Nor flesh. channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.